These sermons have been building on one another. We've had three sermons before today. This is our fourth. So let me give you a brief summary of where we've been in the Bible and what we have found there. The main passages that we have read and studied are Genesis 1 and 2, Proverbs 31, 1 Corinthians 11, and 1 Peter 1. And in those passages, here are a few things that we've learned. Number one, we've learned that a woman is a created image bearer of God. In fact, men and women are both created image bearers of God, and so they are equal, and yet they have been created by God distinct. God has made men and women very different, each to function in accordance with the purpose of God's unique design and to complement one another. Number two, when it comes to creation, we have learned that though this is not all a woman is designed for. A woman has been built for help, for hard work, and for glory. She is the lovely one in the marriage. She is beauty, and she beautifies, and she does this in a million different ways, consciously and subconsciously, constantly translating what she or a couple believes into something that you can see and taste and hear. And then number three, last week we looked at biblical femininity and marriage, and I made seven points. A godly wife is precious and worthy of praise. A godly wife is something you must become. A godly wife is the glory of her husband. A godly wife is a help to her husband. A godly wife is in submission to her husband. A godly wife respects her husband. And finally, a godly wife manages her household well. And remember, on our website under resources, we have a sermon page. And there you can find audio for All of these sermons, I think they're usually posted within an hour or two of service ending. As well, you can find a copy of my sermon manuscript for better or worse, lightly edited sometimes after weeks like last week. That way you can go back and you can hear or read exactly what I said and then critically take it to God's Word. And now this morning, we are to our final sermon in this series, and our subject will be biblical femininity and motherhood. Before I preach this sermon, though, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the time you've given us to come together as, as your family and as your people, as brothers and sisters and moms and dads and grandparents and aunts and uncles and worship you. We're thankful for this time that you've given us to worship you and then the time that we'll have this afternoon to enjoy each other and enjoy one another's company and to to eat together. God, we ask your blessing on this time as we open your word and think about motherhood from the most important perspective, your perspective. Help us to understand your word and give us and give especially the ladies here clarity, gratitude, and confidence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be there in a little bit. 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you are using one of the Bibles that we have here, you'll find that on page 645. Susanna Wesley was born in 1669. She was the mother of 19 children. What a television show that would be. 19 children. Sadly, nine of her children died in infancy. Nine of her 19 children died as infants. Her two most well-known children are John and Charles Wesley, the great hymn writers, and John, the founder of Methodism. It is safe to say that the impact Susanna Wesley had on her children and has now had on the world is inestimable. The impact that this woman had on her children and subsequently on the entire world to date, it is incalculable. She was a woman who decided to invest herself fully to the calling of motherhood. When she was older, looking back, she had this to say. No one can, without renouncing the world in the most literal sense, observe my method. And there are few, if any, that would entirely devote about 20 years of the prime of life in hopes to save the souls of their children, which they think may be saved without so much ado. For that was my principal intention, however unskillfully and unsuccessfully managed. For Susanna Wesley, motherhood was a high calling and it was a privilege. If nothing else, I hope that by the end of this, you will feel the same way. That motherhood is a high calling and a great privilege. So this morning's sermon can be summarized in one statement. One statement. Christian motherhood is the high calling and privilege of raising children who are created by God and entrusted to parents as gracious gifts whereby a mother gives herself up for the glory of God and the eternal good of her children. So let me give that definition of Christian motherhood again. Christian motherhood is the high calling and privilege of raising children who are created by God and entrusted to parents as gracious gifts whereby a mother gives herself up for the glory of God and the eternal good of her children. Now that statement is the result of a lot of Bible study. And so that Bible study is what we're going to do this morning. I want you to see how in Scripture we get to a statement like that. Let me take you where I've been in God's word. We'll work under two headings. If you want to know where we're going, our first heading will be 
a biblical view of children, and our second heading will be a biblical view of motherhood. So everything that we'll look at today will fall under those two headings. Number one, a biblical view of children, and number two, a biblical view of motherhood. So let's begin with that first heading, a biblical view of children. Our understanding of children is built on our understanding of children. I think I just said that strangely, incorrectly. Our understanding of motherhood. I didn't say that the first time, right? Okay. Our understanding of motherhood is built on our understanding of children. If we value children, we will value motherhood. If we don't value children, we won't value motherhood and vice versa. So how does God view children? That's the question. Let's look at six verses. And of course, these six verses are not all the verses in the Bible about children, but they're enough to get us a biblical view of children. Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So children, we see in Genesis 1.28, are a part of God's plan. Children are a part of God's plan. We are called to have children, fruitful children. Psalm 139.13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So ultimately... Children are created and formed by God. Psalm 113.9 says, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And John 16.21 says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so children are a source of great joy and satisfaction. Genesis 33, 5 says, and this is when Jacob and Esau, those warring brothers, were reunited and reconciled. And Genesis 33, 5 says, And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And Psalm 127, 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. 
And so children are a gracious gift. According to Genesis 33, 5. They are a heritage. According to Psalm 127, 3. A reward. Verse 3. And a blessing. Verse 5. So when we put these verses together, and again, there's so many more, we begin to have a very distinct view of children. We get a biblical view of children. That's what this is. This is God's view of children. Or a better way of saying it, because it's not as if God's view is competing with other views. This is who children are. That's what we're learning. Not just a view among many views, all equal of children. This is, because we're gleaning this from God's word, this is who children are. Children are created by God and are entrusted to parents as gracious gifts. We could at least say that. The children are created by God and are entrusted to parents as gracious gifts. This is not the world's view of children. This, we could probably say, is not a common view of children. Wherever in the world Christianity shrinks... This view of children shrinks. Many today do not believe that children are from God. Which has devastating consequences. But many today do not even believe that children are from God. Or those that say or claim that children are from God, many of them don't consider and work out the implications of that fact that children are from God. Dorothy Patterson, she wrote a chapter in a book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and she says this, We have cast aside the greatest blessing of the Creator, the fruit of the womb, Children are not things to be acquired, used according to time and schedule, showcased for personal satisfaction, and then put aside for personal ambition and convenience, end quote. But that is exactly what many believe today about children. Children are seen as some sort of optional life-enhancing add-on. It's not a biblical view of children. And of course, nowhere is that made more clear than through the abortion industry. Nowhere is this worldly view, this devaluing of children, made more clear than through the abortion industry. We cannot pass up that glaring example in our day of how so many people view children. This asserts that a child has 
no value unless his or her mother assigns him or her value. In this country, at the very beginning of a child's life, when he or she is most vulnerable and powerless, a mother is led to believe that she has the prerogative to determine the value of her child. And if she decides the child will not add value to her life, she is free to murder her child if she wants to. Those are chilling words. Chilling words. That she is free on demand for basically any reason to murder her child if she wants to. And this reality, this reality of what abortion is, is becoming scientifically inescapable. And many, many abortionists and abortion activists are unashamedly conceding. I'll quote from two, and only two. Feminist Camille Paglia frankly admits, quote, mind you, she is an advocate for abortion. Quote, abortion is murder. The extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. And she says yes to abortion. Abortionist Warren Hearn one of the most well-known late-term abortionists from Colorado, he writes, chilling words, quote, We have reached a point in this particular technology where there is no possibility of denying an act of destruction. It is before one's eyes. The sensations of dismemberment flow through the forceps like an electric current. End quote. Even adoption has come under fire, which is so personal, as many of you know, to our family. Adoption has come under fire as it often works against abortion. Adoption is an opposite to abortion. If you think about it, the assertion of abortion is you are not wanted and will not be loved. But the battle cry of adoption is, you are wanted. And you will be loved. Of course, God's heart in adopting us too. Finally, and I can't stomach any more of these, but I think this helps Christians to treasure 
our biblical view of children. Listen to what Alexander Sanger, he's the grandson of Margaret Sanger. He writes in his awful book, which I unfortunately purchased weeks ago to read a chapter for myself because I couldn't believe the quote that I had read. He looks down on adoption. Listen to the the godlessness, and I just mean the absence of God in, in how he speaks about adoption. Adoption is counterintuitive from an evolutionary vantage point of both the biological mother and the adoptive parents. Adoption requires a person to devote time and resources to raising a child that is not genetically related. Adoption puts the future of a child in the control of a stranger. He goes on to argue that evolution and biology work against adoption. He says it's just easier for a woman to have an abortion or for a family to refuse to think about adoption. He says evolution and biology, and I would say sin and sinners, quote, conspire to thwart adoption. Evolution has programmed women to be nurturers of the children they bear, which is why he says adoption, quote, as the solution to the abortion problem is a cruel hoax, end quote. Again, he said evolution has programmed women to be nurturers of the children they bear. This is the kind of things that you say and think when you don't believe there's a God. Evolution has programmed women to be nurturers of the children they bear. And no, we would say, God has designed women to be nurturers of children, period. Period. Not just children they bear. And we have shining examples of this in our very own church. Praise God. This is a worldly view of children. Again, children are created by God and are entrusted to parents as gracious gifts. Children are valuable. And so motherhood is valuable. But if children are not seen as valuable, it is not surprising that in a society, if we get this view of children wrong, then what follows is a wrong and devastating view of motherhood, which is exactly what we have. Many would not even say something like the high calling and privilege of motherhood. (laughs) That's a minority view, the, the high calling of motherhood. I think many would say something more like the unchallenging and unfulfilling option of motherhood. A woman withdrawing, for example, a woman withdrawing from the marketplace to raise her children is not typically seen as fulfilling her primary obligation. That's a big understatement. In fact, it's often seen as a weakness or laziness. Listen, this is not true. Our children are miracles. They are miracles. Whether you carried your children in your womb or in your heart, they are a miracle. We treat them this way. So this forms a foundation. We understand all we need to understand about this life from the word of God. And with a biblical view, with a right view of children, we stand on that. Number two, a biblical view of motherhood. And here's what we said again in the beginning. Christian motherhood is 
the high calling and privilege of raising children who are created by God and entrusted to parents as gracious gifts, whereby a mother gives herself up for the glory of God and the eternal good of her children. The high calling and privilege of raising children. Raising children. What does that mean? We could spend weeks just talking about that. What it means to raise children. What is motherhood? Think about this with me. What is motherhood working toward? This is, of course, very important. If we look back to Genesis, Eve was to help Adam procreate, but not just procreate, right? God wasn't just interested in babies. Just make babies. Lots of babies. That's not what he said. That was not the point. They were called to be what? Do you remember the word? Fruitful. Fruitful. Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Not just increase in number. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So having children... Just having children in your home that you mislead or neglect physically or spiritually, that is not fruitfulness. It's bad stewardship. It's not faithfulness. It's faithlessness. We see the same thing in Malachi 2.15, which says, quote, Did he, that's God, not make them one? This is a husband and wife. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Do you remember what it says? Godly offspring. Not just offspring. Godly offspring. We see it in Ephesians 6, 4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's many other verses that we could read together. The goal of motherhood is godly offspring. The goal of motherhood is fruitfulness. Motherhood is sacrificing often popular and professional pursuits in order to give full devotion to the foundational work of nurturing immortal souls to Christ. This is a high calling. Motherhood is a commitment to training and raising up the next generation. There's a popular saying in our day that's been coined by certain famous people. It takes a village to raise a child. I think I understand sort of what is meant by that. It takes parents to raise a child. This is God's plan. Or even more specifically, it takes a mom. We don't need a better village. We need better moms. Moms committed to this task. This culturally transformative work with a vast scope. If you're here and you're a mother, you have been entrusted with a child. 
If you're a Christian mother here today, not only have you been entrusted with a child, you have been entrusted with both a child and the gospel. And your chief aim is to sow one into the other. In 2 Timothy 1.5, it's on the front of your bulletin, we read this. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. This is Paul writing. This is the last letter that he writes to Timothy. And as he writes, the very beginning of this letter, he is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith, it says. So Timothy's faith, it is sincere. It is not pretense. Timothy is not a nominal Christian. Timothy is the real deal. He's a grown man. He has faith in Christ, and he's not just saying it. It is the real deal. And Paul, don't miss this in this verse, he is also reminded that this sincere faith in Timothy was planted there. And it was cultivated by a woman named Eunice, who was Timothy's mother. For those of you who are Christians and mothers, there is nothing that dwells in you that you hope dwells in your son or daughter more than your faith. If you're a Christian mother, there is nothing that dwells in you that you want to dwell in your children more than your faith. Not your abilities, not your talents, not your looks, not your personality, not your quirks, not your temperament, but your faith. You would give anything for that to happen. And in fact, that's exactly what you do. Motherhood is giving anything and everything for the eternal good of your children. Motherhood is a living death. It is a dying life. A mother dies to herself so that others, namely her children, might live. Now, this should go without saying at this point. This is very hard work. Motherhood is very hard work. Motherhood is very painful work. Proverbs 10.1 says, A foolish son is sorrow to his mother. A foolish son is sorrow to his mother. I'm sure we have moms here who could testify to this. There is a way that moms hurt for their children that is very unique. And is very different from the hurt even that a godly father might experience. There is a significant and distinct pain and sorrow that mothers carry for their children. 
Motherhood is painful work. It's painful when they're a week old. It's painful when they're 12 years old. It's painful when they're in their 20s and 30s. It's painful work. And it is difficult work. Here's another excerpt from a letter that Susanna, Susanna Wesley wrote to her husband, Samuel, who as best I can tell was a dud. I don't think she had a, a good husband, which, which actually makes her legacy even more significant, in my opinion. He was hardly there. I think he also called himself a pastor, but he was hardly there. And when he was there, he wasn't really there. That's my understanding. And she wrote the following to him. And this is to illustrate this point that motherhood is such hard work. I am a woman, she wrote to him, but I am also the mistress of a large family. And though the superior charge of the souls contained in it lies upon you, yet in your long absence I cannot but look upon every soul you leave under my charge as a talent committed to me under a trust. I am not a man nor a minister, yet as a mother and a mistress I felt I ought to do more than I had yet done. I resolved to begin with my own children in which I observe the following method. I take such a proportion of time as I can spare every night to discourse with each child apart. On Monday, I talk with Molly. On Tuesday, with Hetty. Wednesday, with Nancy. Thursday, with Jackie. Friday, with Patty. Saturday, with Charles. It's hard. Never-ending. Painful work day in and day out moms you are a physical administrator you are cleaning and clothing and cooking and designing and organizing and you are a spiritual administrator constantly declaring and demonstrating the power of the truth of God's word you are building a home that physically as well as spiritually displays the glory of God. That is hard, hard work. Again, Christian motherhood is the high calling and privilege of raising children who are created by God and entrusted to parents as gracious gifts, whereby a mother gives herself up for the glory of God and the eternal good of her children. I'd like to give two conclusions to this sermon. One, a conclusion to the sermon, and then a second, actually a conclusion to the entire sermon series that we've been able to go through. But in conclusion first of, of this sermon on femininity and motherhood, I do want to say something. What about women who have not or did not or have not been able to conceive and carry their own children? Does this understanding of who children are, does this understanding of what motherhood 
have anything to say to anyone other than those mothers who have conceived and carried their own children? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. So first, let me remind you that there are many children who have been conceived, carried, and born, but desperately need a mother. Right now. They've been conceived, they've been carried, and they've been born. And at this moment, they desperately need a mother. And they do not have one. And second, remember everything we've talked about in this sermon series. And consider, really consider how you can be fruitful in an infinite number of ways. The energy and heart you would have gladly given to a child, maybe given to others in need. Many of us right now can think of examples of women without their own children who had immeasurable impact on others. I think of women like Amy Carmichael. There's so many others. The second in conclusion of this sermon, I want to and hope and pray that this has been an encouragement to those of you moms who have a difficult and painful job. I know firsthand some of the looks you get. I know some of the comments you hear. I know some of the opinions that come your way. I know the various pressures that are on you from within your family and from without. I know that motherhood is not praised in our society. I don't know if your husband praises you. He should. I don't know if your children praise you. They should. But be encouraged in the trenches of motherhood. Be encouraged to know that the work you are doing is invaluable. It is a high calling that God has given you. It is a high privilege that God has given you. And the work that you do, no matter how insignificant or mundane it may feel, is exactly what your children need. Be encouraged. You understand that while the world looks for happiness through self-assertion, you look for happiness through self-abandonment. Giving yourself up for others. Matthew 10.39 says, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And many of you mothers have given yourself up for the glory of God and the eternal good of your children. Thank you. This is what Charles Spurgeon had to say about his mother. I don't know if you've heard this quote before, but it's a great quote. I cannot tell you how much I owe the solemn words of my good mother. I remember on one occasion her praying thus. Now listen to the prayer that he overheard his mother praying. So this is out loud. This is his mother praying for 
little Charles. Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. And so she pleaded for the souls of her kids. He goes on to say, The thought of my mother bearing a swift witness against me pierced my conscience. How can I ever forget when she bowed her knee and with her arms around my neck prayed, Oh, that my son may live before thee. And in conclusion of the entire sermon series, as we've looked at biblical femininity, I hope and pray, I said this already, I'll say it again, I hope and pray that every one of you ladies has gained clarity and gratitude and confidence. Femininity is as The title of this sermon series says, A Powerful Force. It's meant to be. Femininity is a powerful force. The extent, ladies, the extent of your influence is immeasurable. Think about if Jesus should not come back, For a while, think about the impact of what you say and do. Think about the generations to come. Not just your children, if you have children, but your grandchildren. Not just the children and grandchildren of your own children or the children or Christians or people that you influence, but the great-grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren. Think five generations down. Think ten generations down. I don't know. Think a hundred generations down. Think about the thousands or millions of people that will be down the stream of your influence. You can't measure that. You can't calculate that. The significance is unfathomable. You have been made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What brings God glory will bring your good. What brings God honor will bring you happiness. Surrender your ambitions and desires to God. Surrender them to God. You know that God is not the kind of person that you surrender to and sort of fear what they're going to do to you. That's not what we mean when we talk about surrendering to God. 
It's not the surrender where you give up and I'm not sure what God is going to do with my surrendering to Him or my humility to Him. Surrendering to God is exactly what each and every one of us has actually been made to do. We've been made for this. We've been made to surrender our wills and our dreams and our desires and our ambitions to God's. We're here not for ourselves. We are here for Him. We are here to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Which means, and don't forget, that you will be most joyful you will be most satisfied not when you do what you want to do, but when you do and learn to love what God wants you to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word on children and thank you for your word on mothers. God, thank you for the moms that you have given this church. Thank you for the way so many of these women mother and minister to their own children and to the children of others. Thank you for the example that these godly women are to all of us. Thank you for the beauty and the glory you have filled this church with. Thank you for so many wives who are committed to helping, respecting, submitting to, loving their husbands. Thank you, God, for the witness and the example that we have before us. God, we pray that you would continue to grow us that you would continue to change us more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Make us all, men and women, more like your Son. Conform us to his image. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.